0: As we uh, as we look into God's word today, I ask you if you would um, turn with me to First John uh, chapter two. Now, for the past past uh, few weeks, past four weeks actually, we've been in a, a an Advent series. Of uh, four weeks ago, the last Sunday in November, Keith preached, uh, and in the last three weeks have been all Colby. So you're welcome. <laughs> Just kidding. Colby has brought some incredible messages, as Keith did, Um, and as we have spent all this time in Advent looking at what God has done, the preparing of our hearts, the expectation of the coming of the baby in the manger who would be the savior of the world, as we've done all this, we've spent all this time preparing, and finally, Christmas happened just a few days ago. The celebration was here, the excitement was here, but then it seems like so quickly it's gone and our attention shifts from the excitement and all that surrounds Christmas and it shifts into a new year, a new year with challenges, with excitement, with joy, with sorrow, with the unexpected, with plans and goals. If we're not careful we will quickly leave all that we have just spent all this time preparing our hearts for and we'll pack it away with the tree and the lights and all the wrapping paper and we'll just move on. Now, as we consider what we would look at in the new year. We would probably expect a message on goals or on resolutions. Um, We all should, let's all make this goal to read our Bible every day. Or let's all make a goal and a commitment that we're going to pray at least 10 minutes every day. Or let's make a goal that we're only going to miss church when we're sick or have to be out of town. And none of those are bad goals at all. But today's message, I think, is going to be a little more unexpected maybe. And certainly come from an unexpected text as we consider not only the new year, but what our lives should look like as followers of Christ on a daily basis. And so, if you will, read with me in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Will you pray with me? Father, as As we look at these verses and just for these this short time period, God, would you open our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our ears and God, everything that we need to embrace the truth of your word today and allow it to transform us from the inside out, that we would be a people who walked out of here different than we came in for your glory and the good of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Thomas Jefferson Um, Believed in God. He was a founding father. We all recognize the name. But he couldn't bring himself to believe everything in the Bible. Um, Specifically in the New Testament. Miracles. God's wrath against sin. Hell. Anything that he deemed contrary to reason. He just could not bring himself to embrace as the truth from God. And so, in an effort to make a scripture that would be to his liking and make him comfortable, he took some type of tool, probably like a little pen knife or something, and began to cut away at Holy Scripture. And take and cut and paste a Bible that he liked. And you can actually go and see that Bible today at the Smithsonian, the Jefferson Bible. And as we think about this many of us are probably sitting there shaking our heads going how could anyone claiming to be a Christian ever do something like this we're we're appalled we're disgusted we look at it and just shake our heads but if we're honest we probably all have a bible kind of of our own making cuz you see any time We ignore, whether it be accidentally, unintentionally, conveniently, or deliberately, anytime we ignore any command in God's holy word, we are guilty of the exact same offense as Thomas Jefferson. And while we're being honest, if we were to take that Bible of our own doing, our own version of the scriptures, First John 2, 15 through 17 probably wouldn't make the cut for most of us. But why? What is it about this very clear command, do not love the world? What is it about this scripture that doesn't sit well with us? It makes us uncomfortable. It's because it invades our personal space. And what it does is it exposes where our heart's affections truly lie. And so as we look at this uncomfortable passage, that's exactly what we want to do today. Allow God's word to examine our hearts and expose them for what they truly are and what they truly love. So if you're following along today in your outline, you'll see that our first point about our love is that our love is exclusive. 1 John two fifteen again says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Now, before we dive further into this verse and unpacking it a little bit, I want to um, address a possible objection some of you may have. Um, some of you might be out there sitting there saying, well, now hold on, Jared, hold on. Just three weeks ago, Colby preached a sermon from John chapter three, and he talked about the great love that God has for us and how we clearly see that at Christmas time. God's love coming down and God giving his son. Well, if that's you thinking that, first of all, I want you to give yourself a pat on the back for remembering a sermon from three weeks ago. But secondly, you're exactly right. And as I said earlier, we don't want to move past the great love of God. And that's why we're looking at this text today. And you will see that this text does not conflict with John 3.16. Trust me, John wrote both books. He didn't forget in 1 John 2 what he wrote in John chapter 3. These things coexist. And so when we look at what he says here in verse 15, when John writes about the world and the things of the world, he's not referring to God's created order from Genesis chapter one. He's not referring to that. When he talks about the world, he's not referring to what John chapter three is even talking about, where he's talking about the people of the world, the people in the world that God has given his son for. No, what John is talking about here is a world order, a world system, a world system that is, run by humans, operated by human beings who are fallen, sinful creatures, and that is orchestrated and directed by the greatest liar, the greatest rebel of all time, Satan himself. It's a world system that essentially encompasses everything that is against God, everything that opposes God, and it tells us that we can live without God and that we can be our own God. That is what John's referring to here. And when John warns his readers to not love the world, he's giving us the same warning that Paul does in Romans twelve two: Do not be conformed to this world. You see, here's the thing. When, when you and I love something, something begins to happen. We begin to conform to it. We begin to give ourselves over to it. We begin to devote ourselves to it. And before we know it, we are enslaved to it. And so as we look at the things of the world and our love for them, we have to realize that this love, this devotion that God has put inside us is exclusive And that's why in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus teaches that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or wealth. We are exclusive in our love because God created us to love him only. But the truth is, Scripture is very clear in its message. You and I are unable to love God while simultaneously loving the world and the things of it. And here we read that if we do love the world, that the love of the Father is not in us. But what is the love of the Father? Well, I would suggest to you that it is twofold. First of all, it is the, the message of Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is the same message of 1 John 3, 1 that says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And it's the same message that we heard read by Colby earlier from 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, that in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sin. This is the love of God. It's the same love we find in John three sixteen, the giving love of God that asks for only our response. And so that's the second part of it is our response to this love. The love of God is the love that after we have embraced it and received it flows out from us in response to God and our love for him and in our love for the neighbor. This is what Jesus says in, again, Matthew chapter 22, 36 through 40, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we have been called to. This love of the Father that is overwhelming, that fills us up. And as we respond to it, it flows out to him and to others. And it cannot coexist with love for the world. You and I cannot serve two masters. We will always love one and hate the other. But, but how do we know if we're loving the world? How do we know who we're enslaved to, what we're serving? I think we can answer that question by answering some other questions. Why do I, why, who do I live for from day to day? Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who do I live for from day to day? How do I use my time, my money, my abilities? James 1.17 reminds us that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no distinction. And when we take the things God's given us and use them for ourselves or for selfish gain, we're not living out the purpose God has given them to us for. Thirdly, where do I I focus my thoughts throughout the day? Colossians 3 verses 1 through 3 tells us to think about the things that are above, where Christ is. Where do I store my treasures? Matthew 16 I'm sorry, Matthew six nineteen through 21 says that we should not store up treasures here on earth, but in heaven for where treasure is, there our heart will be also. And finally, why do I do what I would do? Day in, day out, why do I do what I do? 1 Corinthians ten thirty one tells us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And Colossians three seventeen says that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in name of Christ our Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And it's certainly not bad for us to love our spouses, our children, our friends. It's not bad to love hobbies or recreation or even our jobs and what we do for a living. But the problem comes when we love these things and prioritize them over God. God is a jealous God. He has created us to love him over everything else. And when we love him first and love him most, every other love that we have falls into its proper place. And this is so important to us because of what our second point in our outline today is, that our love is easily misdirected. 1 John 2, 16 says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but it's from the world. Now, let me be clear. Desires are good things given to us by God. They quickly become twisted and evil when they are not directed by God and toward God. A desire of the flesh, sex, was given to us by God for enjoyment and for Procreation but when it is not in the context of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime, it is sin. Wanting to own a nice house to be considered a desire of the eyes and working towards that goal is certainly not a bad thing, but when it leads us to covetousness and greed, it is evil. Rejoicing over a promotion at work Going along with the pride of life, it's not bad, but it becomes evil when we have degraded others to get there or when we then place ourselves as better than others once we're there. If we go all the way back to Genesis 3, we see that this is no new temptation. When we go to Genesis 3, we see the origin of what John is writing about here. And in Genesis 3, 1-7, through 7, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made, And here's the verse in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here in Genesis 3, we see Satan's inaugural temptation into this world system. We see the fall of the first Adam. And so it should come to no surprise to us when we see the second and the last Adam, Jesus Christ coming into the world and how Satan goes about tempting him in Matthew 4, 1 through 10. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, fulfill the desire of the flesh. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Fulfill the pride of life. You're the son of God. God's not gonna let anything bad happen to you. Look who you are. But Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And again, the devil led Him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See all this, fulfill the desire of your eyes. I'll give it to you. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus was tempted with the same things that John is talking about here in 1 John two sixteen, And yet he remained without sin. You see, we are not like Jesus. Because as Romans chapter one, specifically in verse 25 points out very clearly to us, our hearts quickly turn from the creator to worship and serve and love the creation. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller um, says that our hearts are idol-making factories that make good gifts from God ultimate in our lives and thus replace God in our affections. He writes specifically, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Our love is easily misdirected. And we must be on our guard against idolatry and worldliness because the gospel is at stake. <laughs> the greatest threat to evangelicals in America is not persecution from the world as it is in some other places, but is seduction by the world. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this. The great 19th century preacher from Britain said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. What an indictment, but how true it is. We will never reach the world by becoming like the world and we'll never reach the world by withdrawing from it the only way that we will reach the world is by extending to the world the one thing we have to offer and that is the gospel the one way we will reach the world is by loving God and loving our neighbor John three sixteen rings true it's love God loved the world. God loved people made in his own image and he sent Jesus for them. And just as God loved the world by sending his son, we love the world by giving the good news of his son. When our desires are in accordance with God's will, the world takes notice because our desires are no longer like its desires are. And Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 that his followers are to be salt and light. We're to stand out from the world. So do you stand out? Do I stand out? What drives you? Is it love for the things of the world to gratify the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life? Can your desires... Can your lust be distinguished from your unbelieving family and coworkers and classmates? Do you stand out? Do I stand out? See, when our love is misdirected to things of the world, the gospel is at stake. And as we will see in this third and final point of today's outline, we are placing our affections on things that will not last when we love the world when our love is meant to last forever. First John two seventeen, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, it's likely that some of you um, have, expe- have had an experience like what I'm about to describe um, here actually even within the last few days. So there's a gift to be given to a child a very nice, a very expensive gift that a lot of thought and time, not to mention dollars, was put into to give them. The day comes to give them the gift and they pull off their wrapping paper and there's the box. And as you have your family and friends and all the adults gather around to look at this amazing gift you got, they're talking about how awesome it is, they're giving you high fives, talking about how great this gift is and you're just thinking, Yep, I'm the best gift giver ever. And right as you're getting it out of the box and getting it prepared for the child, you turn and you look and you're expecting to find just this child just about to explode with excitement for this gift. And you look and you don't see what you're hoping for because the ungrateful little things over there playing with the box and the wrapping paper that the gift came in. Gift. Amazing gift. Gift that costs more than your first car. Box and wrapping paper. Cardboard. It doesn't make sense, does it? Now, some of you are out there laughing because you've had a child do this to you. And some of you are out there laughing because you were the child doing this to your parents. And some of you aren't laughing because, I don't know why, because that's funny. But (laughs) here's the thing. When you and I love the things of the world instead of the things of God, we're doing the exact same thing. God has given us infinite love and grace freely in his son. And we would rather mess around with things that aren't going to last till tomorrow. Nothing in this world, none of the sinful desires that plague it are going to last. They're passing away. There'll be no more. They're headed for a definite and final end. That's destruction. This world, its system, it's not gonna last. All the things that charm us most, your car, your house, your boat, your pension, your position at work, your degree, none of those things are gonna last for eternity. They're all gonna to come to an end one day. But we should not linger there, because what does the second half of the verse say? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. The will of God. We, we, we throw that term out a lot, but perhaps for some of you and many of you even, it kind of seems foreign. You don't really understand what it means and you certainly don't understand what it means for you. Maybe you thought you knew God's will, but down the road, some months and some years, it looks very different from what you expected. Maybe you've never considered the will of God. Or maybe right now in this very moment, you're paralyzed with fear because you don't know what the will of God is for your life. What is the will of God? In John 6, verse 40, Jesus says, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And 1 Corinthians 2, 9 tells us that no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor heart of man. Imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things abide forever. What is the will of God for you? That you look on the sun and believe. That you look on the sun and live. That is God's will for your life. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared. And yet in Revelation 21, Revelation 21, God gives us a brief glimpse of what awaits us. God in his supreme grace gives us this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. we also have the promise of Romans 8, 28 as we await that day that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, with such promises made to us, how could we ever dare to love something less than our great God who loved us and gave himself for us? And yet, so easily we were pulled astray because we take our eyes off of the sun. C.S. Lewis In his book, The Weight of Glory, puts it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So in conclusion, I ask you, what will you love in 2016? Because the love of God should lead us to love the right things for the right reasons. What will you love in 2016? Will you continue to cut and paste the parts of the Bible that you feel comfortable with and let your life be guided by those? Will you go on setting your affections on things that will only bring death when you've been offered eternal life as a free gift from God? Will the things of the world continue to steal away your love for the one who made you, who died for you, and who rose from the dead for you? What will you love in 2016? St. Augustine said this. He said, hold fast to Christ. For you, for you, he became temporal so that you might partake of eternity. What will you love in 2016? I urge you each day, Let it be Jesus. Let it be Jesus. Remember the gospel and be moved to love God and to love your neighbor. Look to Christ and love him. Let's pray.